Um, and then, yeah. Well, hey, we are recording right now. Uh, we just started five seconds ago, and um, uh, episode three hundred two. And um, I never, I've butchered it so many times. When I talked to your brother, I butchered it so many times, and I don't know why I haven't figured this out. But apparently, I just wait until the podcast is live and recording, like I am right now, just making an idiot of myself. How do I? Is it all brocked or all brecht? Uh, well, depends. If you're German, it's all brocked. All <laughs> brocked. Yeah, all brocked. But I, uh, but I, we've kind of Americanized it up. All brecht. Okay, all brecht. Yeah, okay. So, okay. And you know when I say all brecht, people usually spell it A L B R E C H T, which is more common. That's close enough. It's you know? a, yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah. I think I've seen it spelled different ways because there are so many times where I've been like. I've like texted or emailed your brother and I've been like, am I saying it wrong? And I go back and I look at it. I'm like, no, it's a, and then I'm just like, yeah, it's just, right. yeah. I don't if, know. if anybody's got that name and they're probably relative. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Right. Same thing with like yeah. Kerrigan, C A R R I G A N. I think yeah, uh-huh. that's about it. I don't know anyone else that will have this name. Right. It's, um, but so I read your resume. I have your pictures, but for everybody listening, you just give like a really were you re, were you really in so you were in the FBI hostage rescue team but you you were in uh, Donald Trump's security detail well for Republican no Republican no candidates I, I I had tried out for HRT in 1988 didn't make it okay. but I was on SWAT okay so my entire career and okay. um, but I was no yes I was in on with Trump's security team in 2015 that was uh, back when. Um, he, I was retired. I was working, doing contract work. And long story short, we can get into more of it later. But the, um, I, you know, I, I connected with uh, all the guys that I, I knew that were out doing freelance stuff like me. And one of them called me from New York. We were on the SWAT team together in New York. He says, "Hey, I just got a call from uh, the head of security for Trump, and uh, would you be interested in doing security for him?" And I said, "Hell yes." <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that was in June of 2015 when he walked down the elevator, and um, it's a convoluted story of how it got to me way out in Kansas City. <clears throat> but it makes perfect sense if you know the the, the chronology. But it's uh, I mean, I, we can start with that. If you sure, want. dude. There's no there's there's no schedule to anything, man. I just open it up and we just see where it goes. There's this isn't. I always try to tell this to people. This isn't this isn't a, a this isn't a night show with Jimmy Fallon. Well, it's like, why didn't you tell me about your new book? Like, no, kiss my ass. Like, we can start start with anything. I don't give a shit. Let's just jump into it. Well, it, it is uh, you know he, Trump got declared in 2015, and of course he has a security detail, very small one that he had with him, a bodyguard basically. Yeah. And uh, but this guy also ran his security for. Um, uh, for the Trump Organization. His name was Keith Schiller. Yeah, great guy. <clears throat> Former NYPD. And um, so he, he, when he realizes that, that his boss is going to run for president, he says, hmm, I better up my game a little bit. I need some more help. So he reached, reached out to a, a friend of his, a Trump, friend of the Trump Organization, Bernie Carrick. Bernie Carrick uh, says, yes, I know some uh, FBI guys that retired might be perfect for this. He calls a guy that uh, uh, Gary and he calls Gary. He says Gary, Greg, he and Gary were uh, in Bernie Carrick before, before he was chief of police. He was a he was a cop in, in New Jersey, and this guy was he was uh, he was Gary's training officer. Yeah, and so that's how far back these guys go. And, and Gary was an FBI agent. He was on SWAT in New York, and, and so was I. He was on after me, but we have a mutual friend that was that overlapped both of us. 
he calls uh, Eddie. Eddie calls me and says, hey, uh, we got this opportunity. Are you, are you interested? I said, hell yeah. So um, I, they said, yeah, we're just going to maybe once a month. Uh, it comes out to Iowa, especially out in the Midwest. You, get, you can cover it. I said, yeah, no problem. So the first thing I did, I called my brother Bill. Now, I've done executive protection for, like, the director and the attorney general. And, you know, I've been trained in it as part of my SWAT duties. But I looked at um, I looked at him and I said, okay, this is what I've got from my, my book learning. Okay, but tell me, you know, like, fill me in on some details. And what, now, how would, I, how, would, how would you approach this? And he kind of schooled me a little bit, helped me out and know what, what I need to do. So I hit the ground running in Iowa. My first one was Ames, Iowa, and, and the um, – he was there, and that's when he made the famous comment about McCain. And I'm backstage standing there going, well, this is fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, but you know what? You know, as, as, as you know, he, he just kept moving. You know, it just kept moving. You know, I can't, can't hit a moving target. So yeah. uh, next thing you know, they called me uh, a week later. He got another one. And next week, you know, hey, we got two next week. And the you know, next thing you know, I'm I'm on the road constantly. And then I started going out to, you know, New Hampshire and Nevada and, and uh, you know, New Mexico and all over the place and doing doing different different events. And then they, and they all run together because, as you'll see, they, this thing got this thing took on a life of its own. But between 20, June of 2015 and November of 2015, we were the security detail for Donald Trump, myself and about five other uh, FBI agents. Uh, Mike and um, uh, God, there was a host of us. And again, I get con- confused because we had so many, we had so many guys at the time, and then we tran- transitioned over to um, to campaign security. I'll get into that in a second. But we had so anyway, we but all the the, the core guys, Mike, Gary, Eddie, me, all New York SWAT guys. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's how we knew each other. And uh, uh, so this went on fine. Everything went on swimmingly. Uh, and the, but the, you know, the events got bigger. Uh, it got crazier. Uh, uh, everybody thought we were Secret Service, which was good because there was only a handful of us. And so, uh, as it turned out, the threat. There's a matrix the Secret Service applies to the candidates. It uh, had how many threats they get, and how much money they got. What's their what's their position in the race? You know, yada yada yada. And so, at some point. Trump met the matrix. Of course, they're getting a lot of pressure from his family saying, hey, you need to get him. You need to get Secret Service protection. These, these FBI flunkies aren't doing the job. Yes. <laughs> like the, we didn't have the resources. The B like team. The, like the Secret Service, right? Yeah. So bottom line is uh, Secret Service came in on uh, Veterans Day, uh, November uh, 11th, uh, 2015. I remember that because my last, it was my last um, event with him. And um and we all, you know, I remember we took pictures and everything. He just, he's just the nicest guy. And what you see is what you get. He is exactly the same in person as he is on TV. He's exactly the same guy. There's no difference. So anyway, we, I'm out of a job. So I didn't have anything to do. Uh, I went back to doing my, you know, my work, my, my company. I, I've got, I do security consulting, private investigation training. And I, I'm an instructor at a, at a local range, things like that. Well. Uh, as it turns out, uh, they called me in March of 2016 and said, hey, uh, we're putting the band back together. Basically. And said, uh, we got problems. Uh, uh, I've been hearing the news about all the disruptions at the uh, campaign events. And, uh, you know, I uh, so now, you know, this is part of the course, I guess. And, and uh, but they said, no, what's and they said, what's going on is 
the opposition, the Democrats essentially are running operatives in to cause problems, to okay. instigate, you know, fights and, you know, and, and make, make Trump look bad because sure. he was the front runner. Sure. He basically took over, as you know, he took off, you know, running and he was, in, he was out front the whole time. So <clears throat> anyway, so our job was to come in and, and do security for, for the campaign. So which which entailed as far as I was concerned, that meant we need to screen people. And then of course my first event was right here in Kansas City. And we literally had a riot at the at the thing. And we had people coming in with protest signs and everything. Well, I was saying, hey, we can't let these people in. They're gonna cause trouble. Well, at first they said, this is the campaign people, they said, no, nah, we can't keep it's a, it's an open event, we can't keep people out. I said, well, we're gonna have trouble. So Luckily, because you know, I'd like to say it's because of the uh, my relationship with Kansas City, Missouri PD, but that's not the case. They're just a solid, solid police department. And uh, basically, I said, "Look, we're we're having all kinds of trouble. Uh, we I need help. I mean, I had hired six guys, six security people. Um, uh, the New Yorkers were refer to the name Square Badger. They're uh, they're basically unarmed security. Okay, and it's uh, they were there to help me out, and they and they did a great job." But they're just, you know, they're just rent rent cops basically, mm-hmm. and and so they did the best they could. But this it was just chaotic. So as it turned out, the cops came in, and it's and all all they, all I had to do was point. They were throwing them out, and then the owner of the place at the end of the night told me he's been in the business uh, forty years, never seen that many people thrown out in one night. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so that set the tone okay. for what was going to take place over the next several months. I, next several months from, from March of 2016, all the way through to the um, election, uh, we, all of us would go out. We had, now we had expanded to like maybe almost a dozen guys that were going out and doing these campaign events. And we had, um, uh, we go out and we basically liaison with the campaign, the police, the Secret Service, and then we we uh, organize our security for the campaign and the event with their existing security plans, and basically our job was just to maintain order inside. Secret Service is not in the business of throwing people out of events because it's a you know freedom of speech, all that sure. stuff. But I could throw them out because this was a we rented this this building or a, uh, space or whatever it was, and this was now. Our house. Okay. We rented it. It belongs to us. Private property. Therefore, we dictate who stays, who goes. So when people start asking up, which they did, um, we uh, immediately said, "Well, sometimes it was me grabbing them by the collar, throwing them out, or I tell the police, hey, you know, these guys got to go.' Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm 60, 61 years old, okay, and I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I don't intimidate people anymore. So, uh, I, I, if I ever did, anyway. So, but the bottom line is, is uh, they, we sometimes I had to physically throw them out, but most of the time I could just say, hey, these guys got to go. Yeah. Cops would take them. Sometimes the cops were there, available. Sometimes they weren't. It just depends. Like in Albuquerque, I remember there were cops inside. We had a riot outside, a little, a little riot, and the cops inside had to go out and help the cops outside. So, so myself. And another uh, uh, another FBI agent, Mike, was with me. Uh, he was. Uh, we were throwing guys out along with our security people. It was a free fall. Ruined my suit. You know, there's a great story behind that. But I, I get uh, it, it. Just got it, some of these were just absolute free falls, and others went off without a hitch. Mm-hmm. So this went on, and I, I lost count of how many I did. But I was all over the United States, and um, you know, they paid us pretty damn good. 
And we went all over the United States, all the way through the, those, those uh, what, six months that led up to the, uh, our, our seven months that led up to the uh, election. And then when the election occurred, then, uh, you know, basically I, I'm out of a job. But I, I did I did get to attend the um, uh, election night at the uh, in New York City at the election headquarters. Oh, shit. Unbelievable. Really? Unbelievable. I'll never forget it. One of the most memorable events of my life, uh, without a doubt. I mean, I could go on for hours talking about this thing. But anyway, the bottom line, fast forward, the election occurs. Trump was elected. Uh, we did another event, a uh, uh, campaign security event for a, an event in Alabama in between during the transition period. And then we also worked the inauguration. And then that was that. I was done. I mean, the Secret Service had them from there and they were in very good hands. My brothers, you know, retired Secret Service. So a lot of respect for those guys. Yeah. I, I In fact, I called my brother after I did this for a while and I said, you know, when I used to do these these protection details <clears throat> here and there, um, I used to say, yeah, you know, this this has the strong points and weak points. But now when I'm doing them on a regular basis, I have a whole new appreciation for the kind of work these, that goes into these yeah. things and, and how taxing it is. I said, oh, my God. I, I remember in the month of October, I slept in my own bed one night. Yeah. I mean, it was just it was 2016. It was just crazy. And I, and he goes, yeah, that was my life during election year. So I, and I remember him. You know, he'd be gone nine months out of the year. Uh, during election year, when he was when he was busy, and that's that's kind of how I felt. But it was it was quite the experience, I'll tell you. And it's and, it's, um, and I tell people, they go, well, how did you know that happen? I go, well, how did some kid from uh, you know Rock Island, Illinois, end up in the FBI, and then next thing you know, he's being a bodyguard for Trump? I go, well, life is funny. Life just but unrolls. It's all yeah. about it's it's not only what you know, it's who you know. And mm-hmm. I I know a lot of people, and a lot of people know me. But we all agree that you have to have skills that they need, but you also got to have, you know, I know a lot of people that, that can do this job that, that like when I started looking around for people, all the best guys were already busy, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of guys I probably could have asked, but I can tell right now they weren't going to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. They're just, it wasn't in their personality to do this kind of work. They're good at the, what they did. Uh, but they were good at maybe doing what what I was doing here. So the list got pretty short. Mm-hmm. So I, um, but it was it was a phenomenal experience, really was. And so, but it, like I said, just one of those things that come with the job of being an FBI agent. Just and now I'm retired, and and um, all this experience and training has to pay off somehow. Yeah. So, what, so when they hand off to like purely Secret <laughs> Service, I mean, I know that obviously Secret Service is massive, and I know every presidential trip is. I'm pre- isn't it like I'm pretty sure they're all categorized as actually actual military operations, and it's yeah, like the 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 work, the preparation going into like a trip to San Francisco is insane. The different yeah, different zones of like increased security. They have guys that go ahead of time um, for the immediate detail. Is it true that a lot of those guys or a portion of them are like ex Delta Force or Dev Grew, you know, SEAL Team Six? Maybe I mean I'm sure there are a few. I mean there I would I would like I would compare some of the I compare the FBI and Secret Service very similar in terms of how they hire, mm-hmm. and we get a cross section of people like that. Now they, are they all that way? No. I mean you you may have a guy who was a school teacher before sure. he got on the presidential protection detail as a Secret Service agent. I mean it, but they, it just depends on you know they they it doesn't matter what you bring to the table in terms of skills that all 
figures into it, but they train you on mm-hmm. how to be a Secret Service agent, obviously. And I'm really, you know, I'm out of my wheelhouse. All I know is what I've learned from yeah. working with those guys and my brother and things like that. But it's a, it's a, uh, like I said, you know, bringing those, it's like this. I'm, um, I'm former military, you know, 11 Bravo light weapons infantryman, you know, was an 82nd Airborne Division. Mm-hmm. That has very little, <laughs> has very little application to the private sector. Okay. Yeah. But the things I learned in the military, hey, how to follow orders, how to give orders, uh, you know, uh, discipline, uh, you know, th- things that things that you take with you when you leave the military applies to a law enforcement job very well. Yeah. And so no matter what kind of skills you had, yeah, you might you may, say you came out of Delta Force and, um, and you went to um, the Secret Service. Well, you, you're obviously going to be pretty, pretty physically fit. Probably going to be pretty proficient with weapons, and you're but you're going to be a solid, rock solid guy. You know, I mean th- that you've already you've been there, done that. So, but what those skills are going to help you? But you're going to learn. They're going to teach you how to do the job. There's a lot to it, a lot to it. Yeah. And I only scraped the surface. I was doing, you know, you know, Trump was obviously a high threat target, but they by the time uh, he got. By the time it got really serious, Secret Service had them yeah. under, in their, under their control. Yeah. It, it got to the point where, you know, if, if we had continued to uh, protect him, uh, we would not have been able to adequately protect him. But that's why the Secret Service came in. Because, yeah. you know, but when a candidate gets up front like that, they become targets. We've learned that the hard way throughout history. Yeah. So um, it's, it was a good thing they came in because, yeah. we, like I said, we were stretched pretty thin. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know I know that he's always had a security detail. Uh, I had on the author Fred Burton, who was formal uh, former um, what is it DSS? It's what it's used yep. Yeah, and uh, he talks about meeting Trump. Um, I think in the late eighties, it was just like he wrote, put it in his book. I had him on like twenty episodes ago, and but it's just kind of a side note. But I remember him. I, it stuck out to me because he was talking about meeting him in the 80s and uh he was like yeah like i remember we went in and like we saw the like you know kind of the command room for like his hotel or casino or whatever like what one of them and he was like i remember looking around and i was like this is like cia tier he was like this is a tight he's like this is odd for just like a corporation and he's like uh he had trump i guess had purchased the former like marine one helicopter and like all the apparatus and support crew that went with it. And again, this is a guy that wrote this book, I believe, before Trump was even president. So this isn't some like hindsight yeah. buttering it up. He was like, he was like, whoever this guy is, like, man, he takes. And I always just thought that was kind of curious. I was like, because I had heard those kind of stories like that in the periphery before. Yeah. And it's how, how serious he takes security, which is, I mean, I guess you got to. But yeah, man, it's. I, <laughs> This is a little bit of a side tangent, more speculation. What do you think is going on right now? What do you foresee oh, in the next? If I only knew. Yeah. If all I can say is, and there's a couple things I believe. Uh, first of all, first, first of all, I don't know who to believe because of the, the media. I, I know. There's like we were having this conversation with a friend today. I just said, I said I don't know who to believe, and you may in terms of media anymore. I have certain people or organizations I will go to. Um, uh, and, and like, uh, I don't trust Fox even anymore. I, no. I go to, uh, uh, places that I have heard things from before that turned out to be true. 
Okay, people and, and places like that. And um, there, there's kind of thing you have to kind of seek that information out. I get feeds, of course, you know, emails with links to different articles and that, that I kind of subscribe to. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I believe that, you know, there's no doubt in my mind there was um, rampant fraud. Okay, it's in the, um, in the election. But, and I, I would hope that the FBI is doing something. But like I try to tell people, um, you got to have you got a predication, which I think we have. Um, uh, but and it, and these are touchy because the FBI is they don't want to become a Gestapo. They don't want to sure. become they don't want to be involved in influencing elections. That's extremely sensitive area. So whatever they're doing, we're not going to know a thing about it. And so, and that's very true of all of our investigations. Sure. If you if you were to call up and ask about investigation, they're going to tell you no comment. Uh, they don't comment on ongoing investigations. Now, if they're not doing anything, they might say we have no uh, open investigation involving any of these individuals, organizations, or whatever. But if they're doing something, they're not going to tell you. Uh, but the only time you're going to find out that that the FBI had been investigating something all along is when the indictments come out. Yeah. And that's something that, because we don't, that's all secret up until the time the indictments are unsealed or, or uh, written up by the United States Attorney's Office. That's all secret. So we keep, it doesn't do us any good to tell anybody what we're doing. Yeah. Um, well, sometimes it does, like in a kidnapping. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, when we need help from the, the public, yeah, we'll, we'll reach out. But we do it on a very piecemeal basis. But like I said, I, I, I'm very disappointed, and that's putting it mildly. Uh, tear ass would probably be more like it about the FBI management and the upper management of the FBI and what they like, like what Comey did in McCabe and, yes. and all the rest of those jackasses up there. Um, I, every, any FBI agent worth his salt will tell you, I would have gone to jail for that. I would be in jail and certainly be fired if not in jail. So um, why these guys are still walking around free, I don't know. Yeah. But the uh, bottom line is, is that I'd like to believe, and I, and I do believe, that there are FBI agents like me who will continue to investigate, uh, if they're permitted, that is, because you know you, we can't just investigate anybody without predication. Sure. And, and the investigation has to be sanctioned by the FBI too, otherwise, it's, otherwise you're a rogue. And you're just uh, you're you're violating somebody's civil rights. So you you have to have an actual investigation. Now, if something doesn't get investigated, it needs to be investigated. There's pressure that can be brought politically to say, hey, we need to look into this. We we do it internally. We'll we'll say, hey, look, we need to look at this. This is and then some for one reason or another, they may maybe U.S. Attorney doesn't want to prosecute it. Uh, we have to put pressure, pressure, pressure all the time. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm-hmm. So if the FBI is working and looking at this, which I assume they are, I hope they are. God, I please hope they are. Because uh, if they're not, there's something wrong, I, I believe. But the average guy like me, the average guy working the streets, the, the, the rank and file investigators and analysts and all the folks that do the work, they will create the product that they that they come with, honestly, and they'll present it to their up the chain of command or over to the U.S. Attorney's office, and the chips will fall where they may. Yeah. Now we may not know anything for a couple of years. Yeah. And then I, I heard our case. I can't remember the details, but a voter fraud case at state level got investigated by state authorities and FBI. It took three years before it, uh, anyone was charged. Yeah. So 
that's just kind of the way it is. I worked public corruption for a brief time, and it is extremely difficult to prove because because it's usually done in secret. Yeah. It's a kind of secret conspiracy, and uh, nobody talks until you get somebody over barrel, just like a drug case. Yeah. You know, so so I don't know. That that's my two cents worth. I don't know. I and people ask me what what's cool. I can tell you what I think. But I don't know anything because yeah. I don't. I only know what I see on the news, and yeah. I'm not privy to uh, any inside information anymore. Yeah. You know, that would be that would be illegal. So, yeah. um, basically, I'm a, I'm as dumb as everybody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but what you think is it definitely has more more value and credibility over someone like me that is just you know. I, I describe this podcast as this is just me yelling at a camera every day. I just get on and start yelling is, you know, it's, it's, I'm 30 years old. I have a biology degree. Like, you know, it's, I am admittedly pro Trump. So, you know, my opinion also isn't biased. There's no experience. So obviously I'm going to say massive voter fraud. Biden's backed by the CCP, bring him down. But that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not unbiased. Granted, it doesn't, you know, I don't think you're a hundred percent unbiased, but you also, regardless of that, everyone has biases. So I'm not going to find someone who's unbiased, but, but you do have a history in the FBI and you literally worked for the Trump security detail. So, you know, no, you, maybe you're not, like you said, you're not privy to it. You're not read in, but man, your, your speculation is worth a lot more than, than mine or someone else. Well, I think this happened. I think it was aliens. I think it was Elvis, right? You, you can offer more, uh, credibility so that that's yeah that's why i was curious of uh well, I, I only bring perspective i mean that, sure. that's because my in no knowledge of the inner workings of the fbi and, and, and the government that type of thing i just bring perspective how i can see from my view but i don't know anything uh more than that it's just uh it's unfortunate but that's kind of the way it is uh, i'm i'm just like everybody else i'm a citizen out here waiting for justice i mean um you know if there was fraud let's get to the bottom of it. who knows maybe the republicans did some fraud Maybe, you know, yes. uh, I've known I, I'm from Illinois. The Democrats have been doing fraud in Illinois since I, as long as I can remember. Yeah. And so, you know, having got, voter fraud has been around forever as long as there's been voting. Dawn of time. But, yeah. Yeah. But, but without a doubt, there was a lot of widespread fraud. You just can't look at all the, you know, all everybody stopped. Vote, uh, counted their votes at the same time, everybody, you know, all this stuff. And then they, and then all of a sudden Biden comes ahead, statistical anomalies. I could go on and on. Yeah, you know, you, we all know yeah, the deal. And and it's funny is that's not coming out in, in, uh, among the, um, mainstream media. Well, of course not. Well, no, those are, that's, that's some state run media. But I mean, like I always bring up on this podcast when I was 18 in 2008, I voted for Obama. In 2012, I voted for Romney. In, 2006, mm -hmm. in 2016, I voted for Bernie in the primaries. I didn't vote in the election. Mm -hmm. 2020, I voted for... So, like, I'm not someone that's just like, oh, that guy's just pro-Trump, or that guy's pro... Like, I've, I've literally gone left, right, left, right. It's... So, I would like to think that I, you know, I can actually... You know, when I say I mean it, that, like... I would be so happy if Trump, if, if he just lost and Biden won, I'd be like, ah, you know, sucks to suck. But hey, you won. But the thing is, is I watched it in this chair, was watching live streams, was listening to podcasts and up till five in the morning. And I watched, and the thing I always point to is it, it's not that I just watched him win. And I watched, I mean, I, I have screenshots on my phone, with timestamps of like, oh man, you can see all these things turning red and it's like oh man he did it again the thing i always point to is i watched my liberal friends melt down on on social media 
and it's and I don't say that making fun of them. I mean, I love them; they're all my friends. But like, I watched my indicate my canary is it's not just that I watched a bunch of like-minded pro-Trump people because you're never going to get any opinion worth anything when you're with a bunch of people that agree with you. No one's you know, there's no friction going on to challenge views. It's, it's but I watched all of my friends on the left and I watched communities on the left melt down online. He did it again. He won. Damn it. And I was like, that was my marker. I was like, oh, he did it. But yeah. then I remember watching like the Steven Crowder. That's like the night I discovered who he was. Apparently, I live under a rock because he has five million subscribers and I didn't learn about him until a month ago. But I watched his uh, election live stream. It was like seven hours. And in the last hour they're wrapping it up it's like four in the morning and it's like yeah like he he clearly won this and it's and then you get to the last like half hour trump comes out and does like a presser and it was like yeah he did it and then you get down to like the last 20 minutes of the stream and you all of a sudden you go we're getting um they stopped counting in like pennsylvania and i remember when i first heard that i thought there was like a terrorist attack i was like shit and um and they're like, that's that's odd. And they're like, citing COVID. And it was like, whatever, it's 2020. You know, nothing makes sense. And then like the last 10 minutes of the stream, they go, they just stopped counting in Michigan. And someone goes, oh, and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Georgia. And they're wrapping up the stream. They're like, well, we're going to go to bed. It's like, five, it's like five in the morning. They're all, they've been on this for eight hours. And um, I go, well, you know, Trump got it. That's kind of weird, though, that they all stopped counting. It's a presidential election. This isn't something where it's just, well, we'll come back in the morning. They're like, that's odd. But, you know, whatever. They all stopped counting. It's four in the morning. Everyone go to bed. I think Trump got this one. We know we'll be back in the morning. I went to bed and I woke up and it was one by one. They started flipping. And I was like, that's that's not something odd's happening. Yeah. They, they all froze. And they all started flipping. And I was like, that's what's going on. And the way I describe it is like, it's like when you saw the second plane hit the tower and you go, oh, oh that wasn't yeah. an accident. Yeah, it doesn't pass the smell test. Hey, yeah. It hey, just, one of them yeah. flips. Hey, shit happens. You know, people yeah. do, people do hit grand slams on their first time up to bat in the MLB. Like shit does happen, you know, one after the other starts to get a little starts to get a little hairy and then yeah it's but i keep pointing to that is i watched him win and it's to me it's i don't know i i can't remove that from my mind but i know we're going down a political rabbit hole but that's just my the other thing i point to is the uh the secretary of defense halted biden transition team meetings saying it was a threat to national security which is a little weird is that, is that today? That's in the last 10 days. Still, no, I missed that one. Still continuing to today, yeah. I, I made a news blackout. I've been, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've literally taken a break from the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I'm, I'm so tired. I'm with stuff. you. You got to. You go insane. But that was something that, like, I couldn't – I saw that, and I was like, that's, like, that's kind of weird. But I yeah. saw as of last night, B- Biden came out and was like, you know, they were t- saying, like, you know, they won't like the secretary of defense won't meet with us. They won't give us briefings. The in- intelligence communities won't meet with us. This is unprecedented, unprecedented. But to me, I'm like, that's a little weird. Granted, on the right, you have him saying it's because he's a threat to national security. On the left, they're saying Trump's a Nazi. But the Venn diagram is they are halting transition meetings. And that's a little I'm like, OK, something's going on. 2020 is not finished yet. 2020 is not finished with us. 
But yeah, it, it, it is insane. It, it's uh, like I've never seen anything like it. And I don't think we've heard the end of this for quite a while. No, I think, yeah, I think this is, yeah, I don't think it's over at all. I don't think 2020 yeah. is going to let us off the hook this easily. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'll try to steer it back away from politics but i want i just wanted to touch on that and ask you okay it's always fun for a while yeah 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 you got it's it's i can't not look i can't not discuss it it's somewhere on the trump security detail i'm like i can't not like throw up this opportunity um um my my commenters and audience always hate me for this but i have the bladder of a pregnant woman so i'm gonna go to the restroom real quick but i'll be right back and we'll jump back into it feel free to to I always ask guests to monologue, just talk shit about anything. So uh, I can handle that. <laughs> Don, Don, just start talking. Start talking about anything. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing anybody knows me. That I have no trouble talking. But um, I don't know where we're going to go. But uh, I would say, you know, I was uh, I grew up in uh, Rock Island, Illinois. Uh, at probably the best time to be alive uh, in that area was when the agriculture um implement business was in hot full swing and you know graduated from high school went in the army during vietnam thought i was going to go to vietnam but ended up uh, stateside the whole time the 82nd airborne division never never uh, saw a shot fired in anger but um uh did my time got out went to college uh met the love of my life and it's one of those things that if i hadn't gone in the military i wouldn't have met her and uh you know went to college got got uh, got out got a job, got married, started having kids, and, and but I always had this desire to go in to law enforcement, and um, and, and I was particularly uh, the Secret Service because my brother had 1975. I was still in the Army. He he had got the job with the Secret Service. And I thought, man, that that would be cool. I, I wouldn't, and I and I, it looked to me like something I could attain. So that became my um, my goal was to become a Secret Service agent. Well. As time goes by, I applied to everybody that had a badge and a gun, and um, local, state, federal, you name it. Um, and um, and it's just one of those things. The FBI hired me, and um, I got I got a appointment letter in '84, uh, uh, March before a point late late March, and ended up um, in the academy in April of 1984 on tax day, April 15th. And uh, uh, went through the academy, uh, met, met some. I, I met some people there that I, I look around and go, "What the hell am I doing here?" You know, uh, I thought I was out class. I most of the time, but then after I was there a while, you see everybody has strong points and and weak points. I mean, some people were extremely smart, but not very good on the range, or some people were uh, very uh, you know good shots and maybe they're good. Um, uh, good with uh, the the school portion of it, the classroom phase, but they weren't very physically fit. And they had to work on that, and so I was I was luckily I came in I was physically fit, I, and I didn't really know how to shoot that well. But the FBI taught me, and I came out of there come learning exactly. I knew exactly how to shoot. Yeah. I just one of those guys that just picked it up because yeah. the, the the military didn't really teach me how to shoot a handgun. They they taught me how to shoot an M sixteen, but but it, there are there is some comparable things there but um but i learned a lot and um, um and of course my academics were good and so i i i, I wouldn't say i breezed through but it was like uh it was like uh as my brother likes to say it's like being in a fraternity with guns it was, it was like, it's kind of a fun uh, fun group bunch of guys and, and and gals 
and uh, learned a lot. I, I met you know guys that I uh, some of them I still keep in touch with. One guy in particular uh, met him in the, in the New Agency Academy. Uh, his name's Doug, and we ended up um, in um, New uh, San Diego together, and then um, and then we were on SWAT together. And, you know, we became, we became fast friends and we ended up in uh, New York together on SWAT. And then uh, I went to Kansas City and, uh, and he, he said, well, I guess that's where we <laughs> part ways. But he came out and visited and liked it so much, they decided to come here too. They <laughs> put in their you know, request to get here. And eventually they did. Yeah. So, and then we got on SWAT here and we've been partners our entire life. Everybody thinks we're gay. But when our, and our wives are just, uh, you know, uh, just uh, props or beards. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but hey, not there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, use, yeah, use chicks for beards. Yeah. I've, That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, he's in a lot of these photos uh, that I have. Uh, so, but if, if you open that, um, the, uh, the Academy photos, you'll oh, see yeah, a picture yeah. of my brother uh, handing my, me my credentials. Uh, we're both. Uh, uh, displaying our credentials there, and then where we we came from, he he was at the time he was in DC, which and uh, so he showed up. Which which uh, which, which folder it's, should uh, I, which folder should it, I go into first? It says the Academy. Academy, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, and then if you open it up, there's some pictures of me on the range, and then there's um, okay. I'll open. It. Are you opening them up on your desktop? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> All right. And then a, there's a there's a picture of um. I'm on my the brother I'm on yeah. the first one. You with the getting your badge. Oh yeah, that's graduation. Okay. You know, you can't. I guess you can't display those, but no. Yeah, I am. I yeah, I'm, I have them up on the screen. Oh, you do. Yeah. Okay. I don't see them. Oh no, Maybe no. Uh, I mean, uh, on sorry, on the screen for my viewers. Oh, the, they'll see, see them. Okay. That's why I was asking if you oh, yeah, bring them up on yours and we can walk through them together. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the one where I'm getting my credentials. As you can see, I look a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the porn star mustache as my kids call hey, it hey man but that's the, uh, tactical but the, mustache exactly so going going on and of course me shooting on the range or yeah. location yeah. somebody was always taking pictures we had we uh, when i got done there was a we we had i don't know how many hundreds of pictures and we kind of back then we didn't have a hard drive to put them on yeah we had to go make copies and so everybody ordered what they wanted you know, and then we went at a cut process and then we all got to keep, you know, actual copies of the, the pictures, you know, yeah. so, but there's just, you know, just the, the other pictures are just me uh, in, around, in and around DC at the time. And, but the one, as you'll see there down there, we, uh, there's my brother, Bill and myself, um, he's holding up, uh, okay. uh, my credentials for shaking hands. And yeah. then the next picture, we both have our credentials out yeah. and uh, he's displaying his secret service credentials or they called, they, well, they're also called credentials, but they, they refer to theirs as their commission book. Okay. And, um, and then we just call ours credentials. Yeah. And then the, and then the last photo is my uh, lovely wife and myself with the special agent in charge and the assistant special agent in charge of the Springfield, Illinois division. And that was the day I left the Academy um, and the guy on the far right is Dean Paisley, who was the applicant coordinator. He's the he's the guy that made the big mistake of hiring me. So uh, he, uh, but a great guy, and and that and that's my daughter there, my my oldest daughter, um, Sarah. She's right there in the in the, and just a baby. Mm -hmm. So she was the heck. She was just uh, she was born in August. I got hired in April, and so I left uh, and didn't see her for eight months. Yeah, and or, uh, yeah, no wait, I saw her. I missed. That's right. I left in. 
I left in April and I didn't see her for four months. She was eight months old when I left. She was 12 year, 12 months old when I saw her again. She didn't know who the hell I was, you know, no idea. So, but anyway, that's, uh, I'm going anyway, to, what's the, the uh, me shooting various firearms. I was going to say, yeah. What's the, um, is that a Thompson? A Thompson, yeah, that's the the venerable yeah. G-man gun, right? Like yeah. they associated with gangsters, but actually it was quite the law enforcement weapon at the time too. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I've um, um, that has that thing has surfaced throughout my career. Um, I've shot it many, many times. It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, son of a gun. Take apart and clean though. So nobody liked to shoot it because yeah. if you shot it, you had to clean it. And uh, but I didn't mind. I'd open a beer and clean clean the gun. But uh, the uh, but the, yeah, that was the academy. That was 1984. And uh, from there, I got sent to San Diego, which was a great first office. You know, I it was not a small, tiny office, kind of a medium sized office, but there was a lot of action there. A lot of action. We saw. I learned a hell of a lot there. I've That's got, the uh, yeah. I've got I've got that album open now. It's you in front of the uh, red truck fire department. Oh God, yeah, that was the my one of my first cases. I was on the I got assigned to foreign counterintelligence when I first got there, and I didn't like didn't like it. Too boring. And uh, I want to put people in jail. I want to kick in doors, put people in jail. Yeah. So I I begged the supervisor, great guy Mike Wagespack. He he let me. Uh, he put my name in because you know back then you're you're a new agent. You're just a cog in machine. They move you around. You're, yeah. You know. You got to learn different things anyway. So they sent me what we called the reactive squad back then. And now they call it the violent crime major offender squad. So um, they they put, they finally got over there and got assigned the biggest case I think I ever got had in the bureau uh, while I was there. But in that particular photo, um, uh, there was a bomb scare. I happened to be on call at the airport. Somebody left an unattended bag. Dog came up sat on it there's a bomb in there okay and then uh, so great so the, the bomb squad comes up and i roll in i'm fbi right yeah. they don't look at me like what do you want to do I'm like, well, i don't, I don't, I don't I didn't hear that thing <laughs> you're like <laughs> run away i don't know I said, I said what do you guys do when you find a bomb you do whatever you guys gotta do i'll do, i'll pick up the pieces after everything's done okay so, so they they end up um they end up detonating it uh in a remote they took it picked it up took it mm-hmm. in a bomb disposal unit yeah. took it and and detonated it turns out there was no explosives in it in fact i recovered that bag is what we recovered from the the uh the, the suitcase no bomb so why did the dog sit and uh, on the on the on the bag same as bomb long story short we found out that the the they used an electronic sniffer on it first and this electronic sniffer detects explosives. Well, they had calibrated it a couple of days prior. And they think, they, their best estimate is that they may have gotten, they may have touched the actual explosive they were sniffing. And that residue was on the tip of the uh, sniffer. And when it when they touched the bag, it deposited those scent molecules to the bag. The dog picked up on that. Now that is bizarre. But that's the best they could come up with. Well, uh, the dogs are never wrong. I was about to say so, it wasn't a faulty dog. Yeah. No, I mean the dogs, dogs, dogs. If they detect the smell that they're trained to detect, they will react. That's just the way it is. But we, so, bottom line is uh, that was just one of the many, many negative cases I worked. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was good at proving something didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's some other and there's a. Uh, a picture of an aircraft carrier. Oh, uh, what's the? Sorry, I'm I'm just going through them. What's the? Is is that an MP5? Is that an Uzi? 
Yeah, the one that's kind of like in dusk there. Yeah, that one looks awesome. That looks like because you've got the tactical mustache. You look like. Oh yeah. You, what, who's the Secret Service guy when uh the assassination attempt was made on Reagan and he he oh, yeah. the suitcase he I, drops it and he's got the Uzi and it's Uzi yep. tactical mustache. Yeah, Reagan yep, was safe. My brother can tell you who that was. I I remember that. That's an iconic photo, though. Yeah, it's got it's got that awesome. He's got like a nice bushy like Jufro and his '80s mustache, Uzi, and yep. it's like it's just that could be the cover of like yeah, a porn DVD. Yeah, yeah he okay. looked badass. Yeah, I'll tell yeah, you. fuck yeah. All right, <laughs> so, three pieces. Yeah. All right, aircraft carrier. I think this is it. Yeah. Well, uh, long story short here, this was, uh, like I said, the biggest case I ever worked. When I first got sent over to Squad 4, the reactor squad, we also, in addition to violent crimes, we covered property crimes, crimes on a government reservation, uh, things things of that nature. And one of the cases that we had got plopped in our lap was a joint case with U.S. Customs where they were stealing aircraft parts off of uh, out of Navy stores and aircraft carriers smuggling them out of the United States to London to a, um, a consulate there, maybe the embassy, I forget. I think it was maybe it was the, London, yeah, it was the embassy. And um, the Iranians were um, uh, smuggling the parts out to Iran, Iran because the history of that is Iran uh, was on, when it was under the Shah, we were friendly with them. We gave them F-14 Tomcats. Mm-hmm. And so they had this this uh, air force of with involved that that of course encompassed these F-14 Tomcats. Well, when we we fell uh, fell fell from favor, or they fell from favor from us, we uh, stopped all shipments of spare parts. Which with a they're on again on on again off again war with Iraq was his issue. So they were stealing the parts wherever they could get it, and they had they had gotten they had compromised some some uh, uh, a, a Filipino. Um, supply guys some regular sailors too but the main guys were uh filipino national in fact i think he was an illegal alien if my memory serves me right but he um uh he uh was the mastermind by him and his brother uh, uh was the mastermind behind it they would recruit these guys to steal the stuff they pay them uh and some of the stuff was classified material yeah and they were they would steal the stuff they they would transship it to um London, London would put it in diplomatic pouch, send it to Tehran. Well, this is this had a direct impact on our national security and readiness because we had ships at sea without air, without spare parts. They had the the the, the uh, they needed a uh, a gimbal assembly for a F fourteen Tomcat. They'd go to the the stores and either wouldn't be there or there'd be an empty box there. So if this if we were in um, if we were at war, we'd be in big trouble. And those guys stay out like six months at a time. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this became a huge issue. And literally, the case was being briefed to President Reagan on a daily basis. So you can see this was way, way a big, big, important case. Yeah. And they looked at me and I'm a snot nosed brand new agent. And they go, I think I think this guy's going to need some help. So they, I, they they brought on a senior guy to work with me. And he was he was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Gene, he was a great guy. Uh, sharp guy. And, uh, and then uh, he and I still, uh, we had, you know, we had so many things going on. There so many moving parts. We had a Title III uh, wiretap on these guys. We had surveillances going. We had, uh, we're doing uh, surreptitious entries into the packages. We're doing surreptitious search warrants. We're, we're doing all this stuff. 
then and uh, quickly within a few weeks we decided hey we need to bring a third person so we brought in uh uh les masterson my my uh co-case agent she came in and she ran the admin for the entire thing she was a godsend she got us organized so we could work i mean it was like we were all going a million directions once got a division of labor set up and and the case just took off and so long story short we ended up pushing it as long as we could but the trouble was we we were trying to identify everybody who was involved we weren't getting anywhere so we didn't know if we had reached the limit or not but the basically the white house said we got to shut this down uh this is a this needs to be ended immediately so they did and it, we had the wiretap up for about six months but the case probably yeah you know six months proper but they drug on for a couple of years after that with all the uh you know the, the trials and all that stuff but as it turned out um everybody's convicted everybody went to jail and um i i stayed with the case up until no man until i got transferred off and on but my partner Les, she stayed with it uh, to the very bitter end and uh took it through all the way to the appeals and all that stuff and it, it was like i said i, I was we recovered millions of dollars of aircraft parts from a storage locker and i figure well hey you know that ought to cover my salary for the rest of my career you know so i think i'm a pretty good deal for the fbi <laughs> they, br they bring you in for the aircraft carrier you're like dude exactly. i'm still trying to figure out the dog like I'm, exactly I'm, yeah I'm well and the other thing was uh there was you know there's pictures there of uh, uh the atlanta prison riot and i got long uh, again oh, i was shit. on violent crime i was uh, on swat i got a swat there uh, my buddy Doug, also on SWAT, we were partners on SWAT together, and um, we get deployed to um, the Atlanta prison riots in 1987. And uh, there was first there was Oakdale, Louisiana. The Cuban um, prisoners rioted. They were going to be repatriated to uh, Cuba. They didn't like that, so they they rioted in Atlanta and, and Oakdale, Louisiana uh, penitentiaries. And uh, we we were called in basically to, to quell the riots. The uh, it was a huge huge deal. It went on for weeks, but uh, we never had to make entry. We went to Oakdale, and the negotiators were able to uh, with the, with the LA SWAT team, LA FBI SWAT team. We got there, and the of course the New Orleans team was there. I think some of the other uh, teams from there from the area were there from Texas and and some of the adjoining states. And um, we we didn't have to go in. We um, we were prepared to make entry and rescue the hostages. But as and by the way, HRT was there also. They were the ones that would do the main thrust. And, um, uh, and the, the negotiators basically got them out, and everybody surrendered. So then they picked us up and shipped us to Atlanta because that was still going on. So we wound up in Atlanta and we augmented all the uh, FBI agents that were already there. And there were eight. There were SWAT teams from. Atlanta, of course, New York, uh, you know, all the surrounding uh, 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 FBI offices in the South. It, it was a, it was quite the operation. And uh, we were prepared to uh, go in and rescue those hostages as well, or, or clear buildings, is, which was our mission. And um, that got resolved for the um, uh, by the negotiators. However, we still had to go in and clear the prison. Yeah, to, to root out all the uh, remaining prisoners and that sort of thing. So that's what you see there in the photographs when we're some of the uh, pictures. You see a picture of Oakdale, um, and you see a picture of uh, Atlanta. Atlanta's the the Oakdale is the one that's kind of um, 
it's founded by well, you know, perimeter, perimeter fence basically. Yeah. But uh, Atlanta's the one with the with the, with the stone walls. That's yeah, the, that's, that's Atlanta. A, that's, a, that's a serious penitentiary right yeah. there. And um, and then there's some photos of the team, um, myself and my other team members there. A greater bunch of guys you'll never find. I, I, that's something I could say about every SWAT team I've been on, though. Unbelievably solid guys. Yeah. I mean, just big guys who would would you know watch your back and protect you, and and then and great guys to have a beer with. Uh, you know, you literally can trust your family members if you you can trust your wife with them. You, yeah, it, it, nothing. There's nothing you couldn't you couldn't ask these guys they wouldn't do. Sure, just except I'm still friends with those guys to this day. And, um, and then I, as the pictures go on, there's there's uh, the aircraft. Uh, we're on our way back there. I'm, I'm sporting a little bit of a beard, I think. And, um, you know, those are the, and then there's some other photos of uh, a, a biker compound we raided up in Las Vegas uh, when I was in San, San Diego SWAT. And uh, some training we did in L.A., uh, SWAT, strong, uh, SWAT training with stronghold assault training. And this is all back in the 19, about 85. I got on SWAT in 85 through 87. And then I went, uh, then I went to New York. What's, uh, what's the, uh, what's the guitar? Oh, I forgot about that. Well, we're, we're clearing uh, these prison cells. And uh, we pretty much, as you can see, the, the, the photo prior, you can see us all in our get-ups. And we're, mm -hmm. uh, it kind of progresses to the point where we're clearing. And then all of a sudden you see me with a guitar. Well, they, uh, things were under control there. Okay, we had, we had uh, and we're standing around. And now we're uh, waiting for our marching orders to basically either go clear something else or, you know, re return to our... Uh, uh, our stand down basically yeah. and so i so i see a guitar picking so i i picked it up and started strumming a tune but there's only one problem i don't know how to play guitar <laughs> <laughs> but they thought it was uh they thought it was a good shot me and swat gear uh, playing guitar so they they uh they took a shot of it i wasn't sure if that was that was your hostage negotiation technique <laughs> just serenade them. I think that would have. We would have certainly had to go with a tactical option if that was the case. Just come out. I'll serenade you. I'll wine you and dine you, and I'll fuck you. And I promise yeah. it will all be okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a badass photo. Hey, I'm gonna go fill up my water bottle real quick. I'll be right back. Sorry, this no, is my yeah. second trip. Yeah. I need you to monologue again, Mr. Albrecht. <laughs> Mr. Albrecht, that's my dad. Um, well, uh, San Diego. I guess I can wrap that up by saying. Uh, I worked violent crime the entire time there. It was absolutely phenomenal. Worked with great guys. Um, learned a lot. I mean, you know, brand new agent. I'm, I'm learning stuff. I, I really, really thought I was, uh, I was going to, you know, I was on top of the world. And, and then I got my orders from New York City. I go, oh, no. You know, because it was, it was a hardship because it was very expensive in New York City. Agents were quitting as fast as we could send them there because of the cost. And, and that's, that's rare. And the FBI, we have a very, very low turnover rate, like, you know, one or 2% compared to, you know, maybe some other government agency or, or certainly the private sector. So what happened was that I got, you know, everybody was going to New York back then because they could not staff New York because of the attrition. So I got my orders. Um, I, I, we packed up, we went to New York, and I found out when I got there that of every four people, and this was 1988, and I and that year prior, prices had just spiked 
uh, in the area around New York City. And um, I found out that uh, that the FBI uh, staff, staff there told me that said it was so bad in New York that of every four people that got orders to New York, one would quit when they got their orders. One would quit after they did their house hunting trip. One would quit after being there less than a year. And then one would stay. And I was one of those that stayed. And um, I went and, and right after that, though, we, we did get some financial relief. But um, boy, I tell you, I, what I thought was going to be a nightmare by because of the cost of living. And by the way, I was living 80 miles from the office and it was a hour and a half slugfest to get in. I used to get up at four, leave at five, get in at 630. And if I was lucky to get out of there at four, it would take me two hours to get home. Jesus. But I was rarely luckily to get out of there at four. So um, especially when I worked fugitives. But uh, when I got there, they assigned me to terrorism. And uh, man, I'm telling you, uh, what a riot it was working in New York City. And little did I know that I was working in the city during one of the most violent times in the city's history. Yeah. And that was true in a lot of big cities across the country because of the crack cocaine epidemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in a nutshell, crack cocaine is cocaine that, is, that is, is, is configured so that it is extremely, it gives you a better high. Uh, it's very addictive, but it's a lot cheaper. It makes that cocaine go a lot longer. Yeah. And it got extremely profitable. And so the violence for control of the territory got extremely uh, extremely high. Yeah. And it culminated shortly after I got there um, when they assassinated uh, police uh, New York police officer Eddie Byrne on the street of New York while he was guarding the witness to a big uh, drug organization. Well, that was the, the pinnacle of the violence in the city. And finally, somebody goes, enough's enough. We have to do something. And that's when they lobbied for federal laws to crack down on crack cocaine the laws that have now been repealed but at the time you had to know what was going on it was so bad that they were they were killing people in in uh, you know kids school kids in in, uh, in in the schoolyards of the schools were being killed P- uh, gang shootouts down the street from the schools um you know you know, everywhere. There was no place that was safe in New York City. And I just, I got there. I didn't you know, I always knew it was a crime-ridden city as far as I was concerned. So when I got there, I go, nah, this is just New York. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea until I learned the perspective of history that uh, by reading books and things about what was going on there, that, that was that was going on. But I, ironically, um, as it turns out, I got on SWAT New York. I was a photo of the whole team there, um, mm-hmm. um, that black and white photo. Uh, wait, hold on. Black and white? Okay, yeah, I got yeah. it. Yeah, okay. That's the, um, that's the team. Um, I can't even remember the year, but it was wild. What I got is I got it marked at WLC, world's largest car stop. <laughs> okay, in other words, what we did is that there was an Asian gang investigation, and um, I'm, I'm getting off track here, but I'll fill that. So I'll go. I'll come back to it. But there was an Asian gang investigation that one of the guys on the SWAT team was was working on, and um, they were wanted to take down the entire organization because they they had basically at that point, and there just so happened to be a funeral going on one day for one of the gang members, which meant that all the gang members were going to be at that funeral. So it was at a huge cemetery in Brooklyn. So we uh, we planned the um, takedown for the cemetery. Of course, we waited for them to 
you know, finish with the the burial. And I actually, I get guys get get cremated, and uh, and then when they moved back to their cars, which were all neatly lined up in a row, ours came out of the woodwork, and we uh, we we blocked their 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 uh, egress and uh, and ingress, and we we kept we we basically bailed out and took everybody gunpoint, put everybody down on the ground, everybody, and cuffed everybody, and then sorted out who was who. We had a you know, a book of who was the gang member, who had warrants for, and who didn't, and then we recovered guns and all kinds of stuff. And uh, but we must have stopped. No, there had to be 20, 30 cars, something like that. Jeez. It was a line of vehicles. It was amazing. And but we had them all contained inside the cemetery. I it was mean, a phenomenal well, operation. Good way to hit them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and um, and then we have uh, um, back to the Eddie Burns story. Um, uh, you know, this was everybody. Eddie Burns' name became a household name in New York City. So it was a year or so later, um, I'm on the SWAT team and we're in training. We got a new guy shows up. And he's a former Marine. Most of our team was former military, Vietnam vets and, and whatnot. And uh, this guy, a guy comes on the team and he's a, a brand new guy. Of course, young kid. But his name is Steve Burns. Last name Burns. Same Burns. And I go... And, and the word, well, the word got out. This was Eddie Burns' brother. I said, wow. I said, so, man, you know, he was, uh, he, he came with a kind of a, uh, a reputation, you know, already. I mean, this was this was Eddie Burns' brother. He's now an FBI agent, former Marine captain and an Army Ranger. He was he went Jeez. to Ranger School and he was an uh, Army captain and he was uh, uh, airborne as well. Like So we shared, he and I shared that in common, but um, he, uh, he was a guy, what a great guy, solid guy. I mean, we and we became fast friends. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Guy is just a, a real pisser, funny guy, but a solid, solid guy. Great investigator, great SWAT, SWAT operator. And it all, it all, you know, I didn't realize at the time but, but I, that I'd be working side by side with his brother. And unfortunately, his other brother just recently died. And his he was the, he was a, he rose to the level of uh, New York City commissioner. Excuse me, Newark PD Commissioner. Uh, he was an attorney. Uh, yeah, worked for the. If I remember, he worked for Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office, and then he uh, took a then went into private practice. And then he was tapped to run the uh, NYPD um, legal unit, basically legal division, mm-hmm. which he did for four years. And then and then, but he just recently passed away. Very very sad heart attack. Not that old, younger than me. Mm-hmm. So you know, it makes you think. Uh, but. But, you know, I, uh, my, as far as my investigative career goes, my, um, I started on terrorism. We worked uh, state-sponsored terrorism. I uh, started in Libya, and then I moved to um, Iraq, Iran. And then, and then, we, uh, then I moved to Iraq. And, uh, and then the other, we also had Syria, but I, I didn't work much of that. Um, and then, of course, what happened while I was there was the invasion of uh, Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And who was buying that? But Saddam Hussein, you know, in, in Iraq. So yeah. uh, I was right in the middle of it uh, in terms of the investigation as far as the FBI was concerned. The entire uh, war effort, as far as the FBI was concerned, was being run out of the New York field office. And so, uh, of course, there was a staff down in Washington field office and headquarters. But we were the clearinghouse for all leads relative to um, the war. 
So for you know, as you know, it was a very short war. Yeah. But uh, but it, but during that time, we were we well, we we did some unbelievably good work. Um, even just, even before that, we you know did a lot of a lot of classified, but um, we did we did some incredible things. One of the things that made the papers was uh, we ended up throwing out a um, Iraqi intelligence officer who was uh, attempting a, uh, a hit in the United States on an Iraqi dissident. But we were able to identify him and, and then get him uh, get the evidence against him and got him declared persona non grata and thrown out of the United States. But uh, that's one of the ones we could talk about. But the rest of it, you know, of course, all classified. Yeah. But then um, I did that for, you know, almost four years. Then I did a, a brief undercover stint for six, six months down in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, as a uh, during a white collar public corruption case, as I was a real estate developer, and uh, now that was the trick because I don't know a damn thing about real estate development, <laughs> but uh, but it worked out. And uh, then I came back and I worked. Um, I got on fugitives and I worked that until I until uh, I got transferred to Kansas City. But while I was in New York on SWAT, we had the Lufthansa hijacking, mm-hmm. where the Lufthansa aircraft was hijacked in Germany yep. and um, uh, and it was flown to, to uh, JFK. I think it was JFK. It was, yeah, I think it was JFK. And um, they landed and we uh, we handled the uh, the uh, recovery of the aircraft and the takedown of the, of the uh, the terrorist. Luckily, he he was less of a terrorist than he was than it appeared, and he gave up pretty easily once we were able to negotiate with him a little bit. But uh, that was a an honest to god hijacking, so that was pretty uh, press pretty awesome. And then um, we've got, uh, but the highlight of my time in New York, and probably my best SWAT raid ever, was the the Operation Terror Stop that yeah. I mentioned. Okay. Well, everybody will remember the uh, World Trade Center bombing, 1993. Well, they they tried to take down the trade. Uh, the the actual forerunner of it was Osama bin Laden and the forerunners of Al Qaeda actually were behind the first attack, mm-hmm. and they uh, we just didn't realize it at the time. And uh, of course, it it you know killed <clears throat> several people and, and and injured many and and did incredible amount of damage to the World Trade Center, but it didn't bring the building down and. Um, so, but we were, and it's funny, because of the work we had done on the terrorism squad, we were able to quickly identify um, the participants. Now, we had a whole terrorism branch. We had terrorism groups, and then we had state-sponsored terrorism, which I worked, and then um, the third one was um, domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, the two international terrorism, they kind of overlap. A lot of the stuff overlaps. So a lot of the guys that we were, because if you came in from another country, um, we generally ended up looking at you, you know, for some reason, uh, if there was a uh, some predication for it. And I, I'm skipping over a lot. But long story short, we ended up uh, have opening investigations on a couple of guys that were involved in the bombing, but never really developed any information that they were doing anything illegal. So based on the law, we had to shut down the investigation, but we had gathered a considerable amount of information on these guys. So fast forward to the bombing, 90, that was probably during the you know 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And then fast forward to the bombing, 93, we developed a couple of names and lo and behold, bam, our computers light up it's the same guys that we were working on. Mm-hmm. So um, I was literally called from SWAT practice one day um, and told, meet, meet uh, go to Newark, 
and um, and uh, uh, meet with the, the the agents over there because they're going to do a uh, search warrant in connection with the case. And uh, so I, I met them over there, and sure enough, we did a, we we executed a search warrant, a SWAT raid, and they said, "You got your gear?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "Put it on. You're going in." I Fuck. Said, so I threw my gear on, and we went in, and we we cleared this apartment. It turns out there was nobody there, but it was one of the, the terrorist apartments, and we we uh, were able to identify basically. That's how we got on it so quick. We had a lot of the information, and within days, we had all all the guys rounded up. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the if I remember the story right. The hitch, the, the main guy behind this guy was the, the blind shake, okay, uh-huh. who was in New Jersey. And I think he got rounded up too. Well, that, that pissed off a lot of people apparently. So they, uh, they st- another cell basically loose, very, very, very loosely connected these other guys, if I remember right. But another cell decided they were going to gonna, uh, do a, uh, a terrorist attack in New York to rival the other one, okay? So they had planned basically blow up the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, and, and the United Nations, and the um, FBI office, which is a, the second largest federal building in the United States next to the Pentagon. And so that took kind of personal umbrage to having the FBI building blown up. But the uh, bottom line is they, they, uh, they were putting together the bomb-making materials. Luckily, they got some of the guys from the terrorism branch, guys they used to work with, they by now I'm working fugitives and they're but they're working the case and they put together the case to uh, take these guys down. Essentially, we, we developed a source uh, early on who came to us and gave us a tip that this was about to happen and or was was in the beginning stages of it. And based on information, we were able to uh, uh, you know feed him information, material, you know, uh, avoiding any you know entrapment and stuff, anything they asked for we gave it to them and we provided them with a place to make the bomb but before we gave them that place we made sure that we had it wired for video and sound and um before and that that's where they're making it and of course we let them make the bomb to a certain point sure. bombs i should say there was many and we let them, we let them build uh, make the bombs to a certain point but once they got to a certain point the u.s attorney's office said hey we've got everything we need it's if it's too dangerous to go ahead and go forward at this point forward, now you can take them down. So, you, so now, so, so that's you, when we you let them build. Take. You guys gave them. I didn't know that. So you literally kind of put the you know it's uh you put the gun at their feet and you're like pick up the gun kind of thing. You so gave they, them. They, they have to say, hey, I need a gun. Sure. That type sure. Of sure. It's like they were. They were. I need. I need. Uh, I need a place to build a bomb. Okay, we found a place to build a bomb. They said, hey, we need to get some barrels uh, to mix fertilizer, diesel fuel, blah, blah, blah. They say, okay, I know a guy. You know, we, we feed the information to the, the source. We feed the information to them, say, you know, oh, try this, try that. And they got a lot of stuff on their own, but our source would facilitate yeah. anything they needed. They always initiated the request. Sure. We never initiated. Yeah. Basically, that's, that's, otherwise that would be a trap. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, we, so we always, we always uh, provided it, so we, we, we facilitated mm-hmm. the, the criminal uh, act. But it's, and it, and it's I'm, again, I'm, I'm probably butchering the, the explanation. Uh, if, uh, if, uh, if a uh, prosecutor, federal prosecutor is listening to it, he'd probably be going, let his head's probably getting ready to explode. But bottom line is we set, we do it within the confines of the law. We set it up so that we provide 
the information or materials that they need uh, based on their 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 predilection, pre, pre, their uh, willingness to commit a crime. Okay? Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I, yeah, yeah. no, I, I get all that. Yeah, no, that's. Then, yeah, I don't care about the morality or legality of it. Yeah. Fuck them. I just didn't. I thought that's badass. Oh, so but, you sprung a trap. We do. We yeah, do, yeah. We do obviously, care about that. obviously, you can't be the Gestapo. But you sprung a. <laughs> but you sprung a trap for him. Yeah, and so it was like out of a Tom Clancy movie. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, we were staged like you know one in the morning, in Queens and. Um, this place is, you know, just a, not a short drive away, and we're watching on video of them making the bomb. And of course, we got photographs and blueprints and floor plans and everything about this location. It wasn't very big, yeah. okay? And my job was going to be a breacher, and this is where it gets humorous. Uh, and and uh, my and uh, this actually made this act, this event actually made it into a book written by one of the New York SWAT guys who uh, wrote about his career in, 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 uh, in New York, which involved terrorism, a lot of counterterrorism stuff. Wait. But he was also one of the guys Whitcomb? that was involved in this operation. Whitcomb? Yeah, Ray Whitcomb. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I know one of the... No, 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 I'm sorry. That, uh, um, it's, it's not... Whitcomb's the HRT guy. Yeah, yeah. Look he's, over yeah. my shelf. It's, uh, it's Ray uh, Holcomb. Holcomb. Ray Holcomb, he was a classmate of mine in, in New Asia's training, ironically enough, but... Um, that that was um, uh, he wrote the book and he mentions the this incident in there and this is how it went. Uh, so here we got all the video of all this stuff. So it's good. This is going to be great. So I'm a breacher, and uh, my, now breaching can involve a ram, it can involve tools, it can involve you know opening the door, and that's kind of we were kind of in between that. There was a steel gate, as it was very common in New York, that came down. Um, a, a basically a, a, a door, a steel door. It came down, and then inside the steel door were two barn doors, if you will. They were they slid left and right, and we knew all this going in. Now, if they had not locked the or, or latched the barn doors to keep them from being separated, then there would be it'd be a very simple thing to raise the um, steel door and then slide the barn door open and uh, and go in. So that would have been our entry point. Uh, as it turns out, um, well, we didn't know. We figured, but we had we had contingency plans for all that. Whatever, whatever, whatever uh, happened, we had a contingency plan. But I'll skip ahead to the best part. Was I'm at one one end of this door, and and this, this great big SWAT agent named Conrad was at the other end, and the team leaders in between. And we tippy toed. We shut, got out of our vehicles, shut the doors very quietly, and tippy toed over there. We hadn't made. A single sound, not a sound, and there was this been nothing going on at two in the morning, nothing going on. So I'm watching the team leader intently, and Conrad's watching team leader intently. Team leader looks at me, looks at Conrad. He nods. He points to the ground to get to get. We had rehearsed this basically. Points to the ground. It means get a hold of the door and get ready to lift it. So the, the deal was bend over, grab it. And he says, go execute. He'll say, execute. I open the door and uh, I throw it up and then I reach in and grab doors, pull them apart. Oh, and if they're, and if they're locked, we had, we had a way to, to get, the, get them open no matter what. But the bottom, the bottom line was when he said, when he gave motion for me to go, for us to go to reach in and grab the door, my helmet hits the steel door. Clang. And goes, clang. Fuck. And, and we're like, and you could just hear the the gasp from everybody. And he goes, he said, he just, he, there was no formalities. He goes, 
He's going, execute, 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 go. So I just, we just went right into it. it was, uh, that's what we call an abort. Yeah. You know, so we were right into it, and we went right right into it. We, we threw up the, uh, or compromise, I'm sorry, not an abort. We, we were compromised. We went right into it and threw the door <laughs> and threw the door up and reached in and pulled the doors apart. And just about that time, one of these clowns from inside is coming to the door to find out he thought somebody knocked, you know. And, and he met my, uh, my buddy Craig. He met, he met the point of his MP5 right in his nose as he came through the door. And we put these guys on the ground and, you know, got, got them all proned out and cuffed. And, and, and the source was in there and he got cuffed. And, um, and there was the, the source actually scared him so badly because we came in all dressed in black, came in like gangbusters, threw everybody down. They thought we, they thought we were going to kill them all. Okay, mm-hmm. I guess they thought you know that's what they would do in their country, right? So we came in, and one guy was one guy had a heart attack uh, or had uh, chest pains. He had to be uh, transported to the hospital with chest pains, and uh, another guy literally shit his pants because he was so scared. And I said, now that that's a that's a good operation when you it ends up like that. But uh, I, I included the. Um, the, the the award that the team mm-hmm. got uh, for the SWAT raid there with yep. the, with the, the was it the Daily News yeah uh, FBI uh, foils plot yeah. love New York love New York yeah and then over there uh, another one was Target New York it was basically the the write up mm-hmm. in the New York papers about it, it shows all the subjects and uh, that sort of thing without a doubt one of the best you know operations of my career yeah it's a lot of fun. But they, but that was the, and that was right before I got, I got my um, office of preference. We call that to New York or to Kansas City. So I was having a great time in New York, but I had put my name on the list to get to Kansas City, and um, at some point they uh, they they agreed to, to let me go because they needed some some bodies out there, and so they called me and said, "Hey, you're you're up, okay, for the transfer to New York. Are you are you ready?" And I go, okay, you didn't have a choice. You did it or you, or you got or you got shuffled off to the side for a couple of years. So yeah. I said, I, I, I'm going to give you a, uh, a firm yes, but I want to tell my wife first, talk it over just out of courtesy. And um, she said, yeah, they said, okay, fine, get back to us tomorrow. And I, I went home and it's funny, on the way home, I'm driving this two hours to go back to Pennsylvania where I live. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun here. I mean, the work was phenomenal. I, 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 I look forward to going to work every day, sure. but I couldn't take that commute anymore. That, that commute was, I was going to die on the road. I, yeah. I, I swear I was going to, I was going to get killed. Yeah. So I told my wife, of course, you know, she's all, my kids are young enough. I, the timing was perfect. My kids were young enough that, yeah, they, they were going to lose their friends, but they were going to get into a new school before they got into middle school. So okay. that was going to be a, a, a big point, a big turning point in their lives. So this was timing was excellent. And they, they were all like sixth grade and under. So I said, yep, time to go. So I, I went ahead and, and took the, the transfer. And uh, that's my, it was my choice. So that's the first time I got to pick where I wanted to go. So I got to Kansas City and man, there's no looking back. I had a I had a great run for about 10 years you know, in San Diego, New York, but Kansas City, this is great. Life here is good, you know, and the work is phenomenal. And I've, and I've got great people here. And I, and I end up at the ground running again. I start, I come back, and now they stick me on uh, public corruption. And, uh, you know, worked that for a couple of years. Uh, 
you know, tough work. I'm telling you, I, 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 I admire people to do it, but it's slow. It's very slow. It's tedious in some ways because it's painstaking. Mm-hmm. A lot of records you got to go through and man, I'm telling you, you gotta, gotta have good sources and, and otherwise you just don't get anywhere. And, and, but I wanted to get back to violent crime. I still wanted to kick doors and arrest people. So I put in to go back to violent crime. And after about two and a half years of public corruption, you know, and they want to go, you got to, you got to make your bones. You just can't, you know, be, be a jag off and expect to get where you want to go. You got to make, you got to make cases. So I ended up getting over there and um, I, I got on the bank robbery squad and we, we call it bank robbery squad, the violent crime squad. The old, we used to call it the old reactive squad, but working bank robberies and, and fugitives and kidnappings and extortions and all kinds of things like that. It was just like being in San Diego again. And uh, I, I was just having a great time. And uh, that and that's where I finished my career. I, I got on squad five, basically, and uh, did that till I till I retired. I think I, I think I went to the gang squad briefly, squad three, and then over to fugitives. And then they moved fugitive squad five. And now I was back on squad five again. So. But the um, uh, but I was on SWAT again. So now I'm, you know, I've been in SWAT over ten years now, and, and um, now I'm in SWAT in Kansas City, and, and uh, I continued on. And then we then we're, you know, going and, and, and life just continues, and the cases continue, and everything else. But but I spent majority of my time from '94 to, to 2012 until I retired right here in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, Kansas City, go, yeah, you know, compared to New York, it's, it's nothing. But, yeah, well, you wouldn't think so. But they're, uh, the, uh, the Kansas City and St. Louis are two of the most violent cities per capita in the United States. we got a huge crime problem here. And that's just, that's just the way it is. It's just, it's just uh, there's reasons for that. I blame a lot of the, you know, the way the justice system works in the state of Missouri. I think that's got a lot to do with it do with it. Kansas doesn't have these problems, not to the extent that uh, Missouri does, but uh, and we're right on the state line. So I live in Kansas and I work in Missouri. And uh, bottom line is uh, life here is good. And, and I live uh, out in the suburbs and, you know, no, there's no looking back. I, I really enjoy it here. And, and that, that the SWAT team here has been great. And of course, my SWAT career just continued to blossom. Yeah. Uh, just been one case after another. Um, I don't think these pictures are in any kind of chronological order, but um, I'm looking at them going, the first thing I did when I got here was go to public corruption and then Obama happened. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then I so when I, I was home that day and I was off um, on a day off for some reason and I got I got heard what happened and I, I immediately called in the office. And I go, what's, what's happening? What's going on? And they said, I don't, they don't know, but I'm talking to my boss. He says, but they're probably going to send a, a detail of agents down there. They're asking for help. I said, I'm signing me up. I want to go. Mm-hmm. So I was down there within 24 hours. I was down on the ground in in Oklahoma City working the cases. And basically what we're doing is we're shagging leads. We're They're developing leads and we're going out. We're running them down. So I did that for a couple of weeks. But the funny part was that when I got down there thinking that's where all the work's going to be. And I'm down there, you know, hustling, working, you know, every day, you know, 12 hour days, things like that. The case was actually made in Kansas city. The, uh, back in Kansas city, uh, we found out that through the investigation done in Oklahoma city and, uh, leads sent to Kansas city, we, we identified McVeigh and Nichols as being former soldiers at, uh, 
uh, up at um, uh, the what is it? Uh, Fort um, <laughs> Benning. Drawing a blank on the name. I'll think of it. Benning. In, no, in Kansas. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name for crying out loud. But the uh, but they were they were signed there and they. They, and so we went up and started doing you know, doing what we do with the investigation. We found out that's where they got the bomb materials. That's where they get. That's where they made it. That's where everything was take, took place. And literally, the case was uh, developed in the Oklahoma City, but it was made in Kansas City in our division. Uh, we can't uh, basically we we transplanted the entire FBI office except for a skeleton crew. We moved the entire uh, office out to the military installation and set up in some barracks we basically moved our field office out there and we began the investigation out there and um the 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 case just took off and we made you know put the case together pretty quickly and and turned out to be solid and of course we know what happened mcveigh and nichols got convicted and and uh, mcveigh uh, you know is dead mm-hmm. he got executed so uh, but the case i ended up you know eventually the leads petered out down in um Oklahoma City, and well, we were you know busier than hell for for a couple of weeks there. But then, it, after a few days, it, uh, or a couple of days there before I left, nothing was happening. So I said, I called back to the Kansas City. I said, Can you ask that I return to the division to assist because I want to come up there. That's where the work is. Yeah. <laughs> and they said they said yeah, we'll arrange it. So they they called us back basically, and they. Um, they brought us back to Kansas City. We then I went out to, um, um, you know, the, with the other division. Oh, guy, UPS at the door. But the you, um, you can go grab it. We went back to the military installation, and I helped work with them. And uh, we we had the I worked, you know shagging some leads on that. But but it was you know didn't I nothing I did helped solve the case. Yeah. But uh, but but I did end up working on the case, and that was it was pretty phenomenal. But um, but then. You know, life trudges on. That was '95. Mm-hmm. In '96, um, we had another SWAT operation, big SWAT, national SWAT operation, um, uh, the Freeman standoff in uh, Montana. Basically, these uh, bunch of these nuts and uh, uh, sovereign citizen types out in uh, Montana. Uh, long story. Took, you know, we got warrants for their arrest, and uh, they went. The HRT actually went out and took them down. <clears throat> And uh, when they did, uh, the the remainder of the guys holed up on this branch, and they wouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to negotiate them there to come out, and, and it was it was right after Waco. And Waco, and funny, it was kind of funny. Right before I got to Kansas City, uh, the San Diego, or the Kansas City team had been in Waco, so they have, they may have been there on the day everything. Uh, caught fire, but I, I can't remember exactly. But a lot of the guys on my team when I got here had been in Waco, so I had a, a lot of interesting stories from that. But this Freeman standoff was right after Waco, so the last thing the FBI wanted was another Waco. Yeah. So this drug on for months, and uh, we basically it's we got up there in like February, spent about got ahead of me at least four weeks up there. And um, and we spent out and we're living like you know out of campers and rundown cabins and 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 we rented this condemned house I think and and uh, put on, we're sleeping on the floor in the sleeping bags and we finally got cots and sleeping there we did this for like weeks and well, all the time we're manning the perimeter around this place 
And they brought in SWAT teams from Chicago, Detroit, you know, all over the United States uh, to, to do this work on Salt Lake, of course, was the, the uh, main team that was handling it was in their jurisdiction. But we did that for weeks. And, and eventually we rotated out. And it wasn't long after that, that case was resolved. So that was a big national case. But that was that was that was crazy. I mean, all kinds of great stories from that one. But the. Um, but that's the one. And fast forward, I, I don't want to take up so much time talking mm-hmm. about all this stuff. But this is what happens when I start talking. But the uh, next big thing was was the bombing in Kenya, yeah, Nairobi. So we got the the again, you know, the FBI um, knows that they can call on SWAT teams to mobilize and 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 be dispatched anywhere, well, anywhere in the United States for sure. But it was back during this time that. We start. We started seeing the utility of sending SWAT teams overseas, yeah. and um, so that's what we do. We 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 uh, the FBI would dispatch a SWAT team to a particular area to, especially one that's a little questionable, like Nairobi, Kenya. You know, and what happened there was is we sent investigators over to, to work the bombing crime scene, but the you know there was there was it was a, lot, it was a hotbed of terrorism there. There was. The police, you know, were doing their very best, but they they couldn't they couldn't be everywhere. They sure. they they we didn't feel the security was uh, up to par. So we we can't expect FBI's to conduct investigation without while all the time they're worried about looking over their shoulder. So they decided to uh, dispatch the SWAT teams there, and there was a lot of a lot of negotiation with the State Department to allow us to take our guns and all that stuff. That's unheard of, unprecedented. But we were able to do that. We took our guns. And we we went there and we conducted basically security for the investigators while we were there. And then it eventually morphed into we were actually conducting investigations, you know, then while we we're there too. So because we are investigators. So it, we were there. Uh, God, I don't know. I went there. I was only there at touch and go. It was a two week rotation. I was there for a few days, only like maybe five days, I think. And then um, uh, I was assigned to the Los Angeles SWAT team. They they dispatched, there was only two of us from Kansas City. This was back, you know, this whole, um, you know, idea was just getting on its feet. There was only two of us that had uh, passports that were current. So we, myself and Jack Foley, were the only two that went. We, we went over there. And you can see a picture we'll get to in a second of us on a plane with one of the terrorists. Well, we shot over there, but we got assigned to the L.A. SWAT team who brought a lot of guys. So they brought, like, you know, a contingent of guys with them. And we were assigned to them with a bunch of other strap hangers like us. Uh, and we were working with them. Well, along, along about the several days into this, we uh, they captured this this, this terrorist. Uh, I guess his name is Mohammed or Mahoud O'Day. And... Um, he uh, he was captured in Pakistan, flown back to Kenya, and interrogated by the police in Kenya. Probably you can imagine how that went. In- you know, so. Interrogate, <laughs> right? Exactly. Interrogate. So they and then they turned him over to us. Yeah. While we were we were tabbed because we were kind of you know we weren't members of the LA SWAT team. We were you know these strap hangers. So we were uh, Jack and I were among a couple of guys who were tagged to. Uh, Rend, uh, handled the rendition of this guy back to the United States, and it turned out to be pretty cool. We we uh, we basically um, went down to police headquarters, scooped this guy up, and then the the most dangerous time I had in um, 
in Nairobi was the ride in the police vehicle, if you want to call it that, uh, from the police headquarters to the airport. And they have no red lights. They have no sirens. They simply get yeah, I was I was gonna say I gotta go piss real quick. I wanted to pause this part. I'll be right back. How do you not? Do I just do I really have that bad of a bladder, or do you just have an iron bladder? You, you better just, have that checked. I'm drinking water. I'm fine. I'm old. Well, then again, I do drink like three water bottles during a podcast. It's yeah, I don't blame you. Okay. Oh, go ahead. All right, all right yeah. I'll, I'll continue. All right, my log. So the so the, on the way to the airport was the most dangerous part because the, their their emergency vehicle operation entailed. A guy sitting on the window ledge of the passenger door waving radio. And that's how we got at breakneck speed to uh, the airport with the, the, the bad guy in the back. I was scared to death. I said, these, they're going to they're gonna kill somebody or we're going to get killed. And, and, I, and there was you know, no seatbelts in these vehicles. And, I mean, like it was, it was chaotic. But we did manage to get to the airport. And when we got there, a military transport plane was waiting for us, and um, we we got on this um, uh, got on this, this aircraft, and then it began uh, our flight to um, uh, a friendly country. Okay, and I say that because I won't, I can't I don't know if it's been declassified, but we had to fly to another country who did not want to know when anyone knows we we're cooperate they were cooperating with. United States, you know, you can imagine. So uh, we flew to this country and we landed in daylight. However, we had to wait till dark before we could get off that plane and get onto another plane. So we ended up, um, you know, I was just talking about the uh, the flight from uh, from Nairobi to did, did you go uh, military over, transport. Did you go over to, the most dangerous part? Yeah, I was riding in the car with a guy waving the radio outside the door. That was the emergency siren and, and light. So that, that that was the scariest part. I, I thought I was going to die. But we got to we got to the C seventeen and got on it, and we flew uh, up to uh, did a mid air refueling, uh, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And we ended up um, uh, going up to um, uh, this. Um, I don't make sure I don't say it because it's, 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 I'm sure it still may still be classified. But the we went to this friendly country. And we landed, daylight was still light, and so we uh, couldn't get off the plane. And uh, we, were, we were told to stay put, and we would be contacted. So we were there like six hours until it got dark. And, um, we, and then when it got dark, a van pulls up alongside the uh, uh, aircraft, another aircraft taxis in. And uh, it's a smaller aircraft. It's more like a um, a very small passenger jet, uh, um, not not even like a seven hundred seven, something smaller than that. Yeah. And uh, a, a van gets 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 in, pulls up alongside, and we take our prisoner out, and we put it under cover of darkness. We move him into the van, and then the van takes speeds across the the, the, run, the runway. The tarmac to another that other aircraft and then we get out and we get on that aircraft very surreptitious because we didn't want anybody to know we were there well i looked up there's no tail numbers on this aircraft which was kind of odd you know I, I thought everything had to have tail numbers i said certainly don't they didn't put them in a different place yeah but uh so we get on the plane and uh and without going into detail uh this wasn't an ordinary plane <laughs> so it was obviously 
uh, being contracted by the intelligence committee. Ex- the extraordinary uh, rendition plane. Yeah, the CIA. Yeah, some, some kind of you know I wouldn't call it a black op, but it was a you know the CIA. Yeah, correct, the CIA. A, a gray op. Yeah, you know? the CIA has those Learjets, right? That everyone was seeing yeah. after nine eleven. They're like, why is this Learjet with no tail numbers in Kenya, Switzerland? Yeah. <laughs> it's right. just like, yeah. Well, that, that's saying, you know, we transport the guy back on that on that, and then and we end up flying all night. Uh, we go, arrived in New York uh, at Stewart Air Force Base, <clears throat> and um, we land and uh, we we get the guy off the team, and we're handing him over to the New York SWAT team. My old guy, my old guys, you know, my my buddies from the from a few years prior, you know. Yeah. So uh, I get off the plane, and sure enough, here's one of the guys down at the bottom of the ramp was. Uh, now one of the, the uh, team leaders and um, and uh, he and I used to be just you know just stuffies as we call it just regular guys on the team and anyway he they took custody of him and so now it's Miller time so uh, we uh, we we got a car and we we were able to uh, drive down to New York City get some sleep you know grab a uh, uh, get up get a shower get dressed up go downtown and have a nice steak dinner a couple of beers. And then uh, continue our tour. We had to go into office and write reports for a day, but but then we were able to get uh, fly back to Kansas City. But then after I got to Kansas City, back Kansas City, my team was now all set up with their passports. Now they're going back over. Mm. So they had their complement of guys. Otherwise, I could have gone with them. That would have made my wife real happy, I'm yeah. sure. But, uh, going back. But, uh, but they had their guys, and no, no, nobody, everybody volunteered to go because nobody wanted to miss this. So, um, so they went ahead. So I briefed them on what I knew, and and then they went over. They were there for two weeks. So, so that was '98, and uh, you know, so they, and then the, the hits just keep rolling. I'm thinking, well, look at these pictures. There's what's the you know, uh, what's the one with you guys in like uh like it looks like um what is it like. Is it a shit? What the fuck is the name? The ski gear? Is it me with all with ski gear? No, no, no. You're in like chemical. Is it like ABC, atomic oh, biological chemical? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that picture, that's the, uh, that's WMD training. I forget the year. It was prior to the 2002 Olympics, maybe 98, 99, maybe somewhere in there because, or 2000 perhaps. Um, WMD was really getting up and running. And so all the teams rotated back to Quantico. And we went through WMD training uh, back in Quantico, and so that's our whole team there. And um, you know, that's a it's an awful, awful uh, experience putting that stuff on and and doing anything. The FBI did studies that uh, as far, and the funny part about it, the military had not done these studies, but we did studies on how effective, how long are SWAT operators effective in this gear before they are. Uh, to the point where they're they have diminishing uh, capabilities because it's extremely taxing to be in that gear. You sweat profusely, and and uh, of course you know you start getting dehydrated. And they figured out at best uh, we could expect uh, the average SWAT operator to last thirty minutes in that gear. And the military had never done this these uh, these kind of tests, so they took a lot of our data and they started looking at it, going, you know, maybe we should look at this stuff, oh, oh, but. But yeah, we you put that stuff on, and I'd be mean, tell you it's like it's like you, you've been working eight hours a day. So it's 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 awful putting that stuff in. But once the funny part about it is, even with all that gear on, okay, you got your guns, you got your uh, body armor on, and your radios, and everything works. And uh, when you cross that threshold into the crisis point, 
is still a SWAT operation. Yeah. And that's how it goes, you know? Yeah. So it, it does, it, we can be extremely effective with that stuff on. Yeah. So it works out pretty good. Yeah. Uh, there was, um, let's see, I'm, I'm trying to, I thought I had a picture in here of us getting ski, doing the ski training. Did I forget that? Or maybe I've misfiled it. Oh, there it is. Uh, did you see the one? Oh, yeah, with yeah, these, yeah. Uh, Winter Olympics? Yeah. Yeah, that one was, um, I got it crooked here, but that one was in uh, Keystone uh, where the, the FBI sent the whole team out to learn how to ski. Well, some of the guys knew how to ski, but we we're going to the Olympics in 2002. So this was probably the winter of mm, 2000, perhaps. <clears throat> and um, we went out there. I, I'd never skied before. Not really. Uh, and so I, uh, I learned how to ski. And at the taxpayer's expense, it was it was the most fun I ever had on a SWAT uh, training mission. So uh, we, we had a great time. But man, talk about it. man! I had using muscles I never knew I had. Yeah, it was that was a that was a bear. I, I was so sore after those that first couple of days up there. Why did they uh, get you? Is it so that if something happened at the Olympics, you guys could just like transport yourselves, like because you're in the snow? Is that why? Yeah, so we could respond, you know, mm -hmm. to any environment. And, um, you know, we had uh, the Olympics was in 2002, and we got tagged uh, completely, well, not a completely different mission, but a different type of mission. Our team, you know, had a pretty good reputation in the FBI, the Kansas City SWAT team. Um, well, we, had, we always had great team leaders, and uh, the old team leader, Butch Roll, uh, had selected Craig Arnold, who I, who was on SWAT with me in New York, to be the uh, team leader uh, to replace him, and he was team leader um, uh, up until I took over, and just a super super guy. And he was our team was senior guys. We we're pretty uh, mature. Okay, we had some exceptions, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, we were mature. Uh, we had a reputation. We we were well. Most of us were pretty well known throughout the FBI SWAT community because you know we're older and and we've been through training with other teams and other guys and been on different teams and that kind of thing. So we were a known commodity, and so they selected HRT to actually be in the Olympic Village during. Um, during you know, with the athletes, which is where, if you recall, during 1972, mm -hmm. that's where the terrorists struck mm -hmm. at the in Munich. So they selected the Kansas City SWAT team above above all the other SWAT teams in the United States. Fifty some SWAT teams to be the other team in the in the. So we both worked 12 hour shifts. We worked the day shift. They worked the night shift, and uh, we were in one building, and and they were in the next building, and and basically. We basically uh, uh, were there all night, uh, all day and all night. We lived there in that building, okay? And they were they would come and go uh, yeah. because they just slept there at night. But we stayed in the village the entire time. We never left. It was actually kind of grueling, but we did have we did have days off. We rotated days off, and on our days off, we could we could go to Park City and ski or something like that, mm -hmm. which was free, by the way. We could ski for free. All law enforcement and military oh, yeah. could ski for free, which was a great deal. So, uh, but that was the Olympics. We were there for like three weeks, three or three and a half weeks, something like that. Uh, but nothing happened. That was right after 9-11, Okay. And um, and everybody says like, you know, what'd you do at nine eleven? Well, I, you know, I didn't do much. We yeah. worked. Everybody worked. Everybody in the FBI worked. Yeah. You know, so we had, we were busy. I worked, geez, you know, twelve hour days for weeks on end every day, 
for weeks on end. And then we got to, you know, 12 hour days, five days a week or six days a week. And then we went to five days a week, 10 hour days. And that's usually, that's what FBI usually does work five days a week, 10 hours a day minimum, you know? So uh, that's, and that, but we, you know, we had a couple of leads here in Kansas City that looked pretty promising. We thought we had the 19th hijacker one time, but that turned out to be uh, false. But our squad was working that. So mm-hmm. among the, you know, our whole office was, but we were working that angle. But the the funny part was on 9-11, we were in counterterrorism training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And um, um, we were down there in class, and it was on Tuesday, of course, and guy comes in and says, hey, uh, you know, we're in the middle of class. And he goes, hey, by the way, you might want to know what a plane is building World Trade Center. Now. Okay. So we we uh, talked about that a little bit, and uh, that's kind of interesting. And, and uh, we, I'm thinking a small plane, yeah. right? Everybody did. Everyone was. And then... Yeah, and then and then the, he comes in a little while later and says a second plane is hit. You better come take a look at this. So we all came up, got out of our seats, went into an adjoining classroom that had a TV, and we uh, look. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, World Trade Centers on fire. You know, and holes in them, and when planes had struck, I couldn't believe it. You know, so the first thing we do, we call back Kansas City. What are our marching orders? You know, we we knew right away this was a terrorist attack. So what what are we what do you want us to do? And, he, and they said stand by. We were still trying to sort this out. So about an hour later, they call us back. They said return forthwith to Kansas City because we know we're going to be deluged with leads and God knows what. So get back here. So we we uh, we piled our vehicles and, and you know t- took off. You know, right in the middle of our counterterrorism training, we it was actually a, a counterterrorism executive protection and evasive um, emergency vehicle operation course all put together mm-hmm. uh, was a, a great course. We ended up going back the following year and taking it, but we're driving back to Kansas City and all aircraft being grounded mm-hmm. and there's not a plane in the sky. All of a sudden, we're driving uh, due west going into Kansas City and there's a contrail going across the sky. And we're going, we look up, of course, we're listening to news reports. We go, holy crap, that's, nine, that's, uh, that's Air Force One. It's going from, it was down in New Orleans and had, I can't remember where they were down there, in Louisiana, and they flew directly north to Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. And that was Air Force One. I'll never forget that. And then we went back to Kansas City and, you know, the rest, is, the rest is history. The podcast right before this one, which was, I don't know why I'm saying it, it was just me. I was just doing a solo one, just yelling about shit. But, <laughs> but that's what I brought up. Was was off at Air Force Base and how that's where Air Force One went on nine eleven. They didn't tell anyone that that's where they were going. And it's also like seventy years prior, where or not seventy, it was like thirty five years prior, where Curtis LeMay set up Strategic Air Command. But yeah, that was, it's kind of weird. Just yeah, you mentioned that. But yeah, I was about to say yeah, that, that's going to be the only one you were seeing then, right? Right, right. So you know, you know, we 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 go back and we get our hands dirty in the global war on terror and. You know, we uh, we did all the investigation we could do in, in Kansas City, and then slowly, as the lead started drying up, then our squad, which was a violent crime squad, we we were taken off of the case, and the terrorism squad just handled it. And then eventually, it broke down to a group of guys were handling, and then it broke down to maybe just a couple of guys were handling, just as as the workload diminished. Yeah. But you know, uh, they, they, then was it shortly after that? Of course, we go to Afghanistan. And, um, you know, the war rages on in there. And, um, well, a few years later, maybe it was 03, 
we heard stories that HRT was going to Afghanistan embedded with uh, American troops. And we thought, thought oh, man, that's pretty cool, you know, and uh, that sounds pretty dangerous too. <laughs> the uh, and we we had we had friends on HRT, and we we get uh, you know fed back fed back information uh, as much as they could say about what they were doing over there. But uh, then they they were there was it was such a good it was so successful. What we were doing, the FBI was doing, is going over there and um, basically getting their hands on real-time intelligence. And people understand this, but in the military, they have guys who you know, gather intelligence, but it's a very bureaucratic thing. You pick it up, you gather your intelligence, you send it through the channels, it goes to analysis, and they sort it out, and it goes off to its various areas. And it's it's time-consuming. Well, we had to be a little quicker on the takeup on this stuff. So we ended up um, uh, taking on the role of uh, gathering the intelligence there and, and disseminating it on scene, on the ground, in Afghanistan. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example of how that worked. Um, but they brought, they wanted SWAT operators, guys that were tactically oriented, former military is very good, so I fit the bill. And um, so my team leader uh, got, he raised his hand, he went. And so, you know, I was, I was itching. I had, I had already volunteered. He got, he went before me. And then they, they kept saying, no, you're running the Fugitive Task Force or whatever I was doing. That. I think that's what I was doing. The, the, the Fugitive Task Force, they said, no, you got to do that or, or whatever it was. And then they, uh, they finally, in 2006, I finally got uh, allowed to go. By this time now, a lot of time has passed. My team leader is retired. I took over the team. Now I'm the team leader. Then they said I couldn't go because I was the team leader. And I said, no, wait a minute. You know, there's other guys in my team that are going. And there are other team leaders in the FBI that are going. I think I can go. And I had to I had to really badger these guys. But they finally let me go in 2006. And I end up there. And there's a picture of me in a mortar pit. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was my assigned bureau weapon while I was uh, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, that was my in my, that was my combat assignment. Uh, if we get hit, we go. I go to the mortar pit with the mortar team, and uh, we launch mortars. and And we did that uh, numerous times. <laughs> so, but uh, that's me holding one of those. Yeah. It's a one sixty. That's a huge mortar. I mean. That is uh, that is a big, big. That's bigger than anything they had when I was in. The biggest they had when I was in was one twenties, and this is one sixty. So, um, but but that's me in a mortar pit there in uh, when I was in Afghanistan. So I was embedded with with uh, Third Special Forces at uh, a border camp in um, Afghanistan on the Pakistan border. And uh, we got rocketed regularly and uh, had we were involved in numerous ticks, troops in contact, <clears throat> as they say. But most of the time, I, I, I only went outside the wire eh, maybe half a dozen times, maybe different things. But uh, a lot of times I was in I was behind, you know, working intelligence, you know, but, but, uh, they did myself and another FBI agent there. My, my partner, Jim was, was with me and he and I basically a tag team. He'd go out one trip. I'd go out one trip, you know, and then he'd, and we'd go out we assist the, uh, recovery of Intel from, uh, you know, whatever mission the, 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 uh, SF team did, we, uh, we would assist them and then we'd come back and, you know, just disseminate the intelligence and, and how that worked was, if the if we were in the middle of um, 
like say I, we had captured a guy and uh, took him into custody and they, they, they emptied his pockets. They searched his air, his uh, little living quarters and they confiscated all the stuff, brought it back. And then I remember I, we were going through it. I was, I was one of the guys going through it. I think Jim was actually the guy that went out and picked it up, but I was actually the guy going through it when it came back. So we found a, a, that little, little spiral notebook in his pocket with a bunch of phone numbers, names, phone numbers, all in Arabic, you know. So we're going, hmm, what the heck is this all about? Or, you know, it could have been uh, Ur, Urdu or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But um, but there was a distinctive phone number in there, a 202 area code. And it was, say, it was uh, 202-324-3000, which is the FBI's main number. But it was some 202 area code. And so I'm thinking, why would this guy in the middle of Afghanistan have a, a phone number with a 202 area code? You know, so I, uh, I, 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 I thought that was rather, you know, intelligence worthy. So what I could do, instead of putting this in a report and sending it through channels and then it taking weeks to get to the proper people, which would have been the FBI in Washington, D.C., I simply picked up the phone, called the command post in Bagram, was manned by FBI uh, supervisors, and I said, I'm on a, uh, uh, a coded phone, a um, uh, secure phone. Yeah. And I say, uh, just want to pass this information along right away. Bup, 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 and we pass it along. And they, you know, they they immediately within 24 hours of that me or me obtaining that information, there was an agent working the case, working working that information. Okay, so that's how fast things got done. And that's why I think there were no follow-on attacks in the United States or, or a lot of places in the world is because of the work the military and the FBI did together sure. in Afghanistan. And just prior to me going getting there, uh, when Jim and I replaced another couple agents, maybe it was one guy, but I'm certain I know it was at least one guy there, and uh, he had developed information which actually helped thwart the subway bombings in London right before Seven, they seven. occurred. And that was just prior to my arrival. So, you know, th- there was there was a lot of value to this, yeah. you know, to and uh, and the and the the mission morphed eventually. Um, we continued on for a couple of years after that, but then, God, we had agents wounded, we had agents injured, uh, you know, a lot of agents in some bad attacks. You know, we got several agents uh, got you know involved in you know could have been awarded if they'd been military they'd gotten the bronze star or something like that but did you know they're actually side by side with rangers or seals or or sf guys or or, you know delta force or whatever they're side by side these guys in in uh, combat so they you know it got kind of dangerous and we got the fbi management looking to go at this going okay what's our bang for our buck here is is this worth getting an fbi agent killed you know they got a lot of money invested in it yeah so yeah they don't want to see him as get killed and they thought you know what let's and we were training the military on how to do this and there's no reason why they couldn't do it it's just that we were there and we did it so eventually we started uh, basically weaning uh uh, weaning us out of there and, and and weaning the military off of us and letting them do more of it. And eventually now they do it. And so they've kind of adopted our techniques and procedures and they're doing is exactly what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So we ended up uh, backing out of it. Now, as far as I know, uh, HRT um, still does some missions with certain tier one assets mm-hmm. in the United States military overseas. Uh, of course, I'm not privy to any of that, but that's that's just what I hear 
you know, rumors. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's yeah, that kind of thing. But yeah. but that took me all the way to um, 2006, and and I'm glossing over, you know, just the day to day, you know, operations. We did we did we did like mini SWAT operations every day. In, uh, on the task force. We were going in, doing room entries, making arrests for uh, violent criminals. I mean, we had all the, the guys on our, uh, our task force were either former SWAT or really solid, experienced detectives who had done a lot of fugitive apprehension work. And we did, we did some of the most dangerous things I was involved in it were, were uh, doing the um, uh doing the task force we we're making arrests we had i had involved a couple a shooting or or two we had several shootings and i was involved in one or two of them and uh they were you know just one of those deals just part and parcel of, yeah. of um what was going on at the time you know and, and the you know gotta get i don't know if i have pictures of it up there but i had the i had a huge car wreck where that was the closest i had to a violent to an actual shooting was uh, I, I didn't I, I didn't use my gun I used my car yeah and uh, we went I went head on to into a, a suspect's vehicle and uh, but I stopped him <laughs> and we were able to arrest him I thought I had pictures of that in there but maybe not um, but, uh, I was gonna I was gonna say if you can find more pictures do you wanna I always and I always mean to tell this to guests before we start but um it doesn't have to be limited to one episode. Because often oh, when yeah. I get someone on and they start going, they and it's like, and then we all like, oh fuck, I have something else, and I'm always like, dude, we can do like another episode. So that's what I was gonna say. If you want to find some more pictures, we can definitely. Do oh, it. I got, I got. Well, these pictures I pulled out. I mean, and I, they're all kind of like things that you know, pictures of. And of course, I don't know how many you can put up, but I, there are pictures of. I can get them. Like that, that I, I did a lot of. You'll you'll see. There's a lot of pictures of me with my teammates. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because I didn't do anything alone. Mm-hmm. I was, I was always with guys. I yeah. mean, rarely was I out by myself doing anything significant without a team of guys with me. I was always with the best people the FBI had to offer. And so, you know, I always make that point, you know, I, that my, if I was any, if I deserve any accolades, it was always because of the guys I was working with mm-hmm. and they helped me, you know, uh, they, they, they put me in a position to do it. They, they, they lightened my load. I stood on their shoulders, mm-hmm. I, all those sort of things. They, they, um, uh, so I have a lot of that in there and, and you know, say it, SWAT operations. We covered a lot of that stuff, but the day to day stuff. But you know, I could I could talk a lot about that. What it's like to go out and make fugitive yeah. arrests and Fuck that yeah. kind of stuff. Fuck yeah! Well, I was gonna say it's tomorrow's Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, tomorrow's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is the. I got Saturday and Sunday wide open. If you'd want to do one sooner than later. Well, I'll check my calendar. I'll get back to you. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, dude. Yeah, no. I am retired, but I'm yeah. busy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I was gonna say, no, you, I, you are the best type of guest because you're someone that I don't have to. Some guests, some guests, like I feel like I'm a CIA interrogator. I'm like holding the light bulb over their head. I'm like, tell me about your career, and they're like, well, I did this, and I'm like, tell me more. You're the best type of guest because it's just, it's like, I just push it and it's like go and i can just sit back and you just talk and that that's brilliant and i love that yeah, i'm one and, of those guys no i i'm not kidding i i'm not being sarcastic i appreciate that more than you know i on this is episode 302 i've i've learned to there are different flavors of guests and there are flavors i like and there are flavors i don't and uh obviously i love all guests for coming on but 
no, you're an awesome guest and that you, you can talk and you have data and I don't have to sit here with a gun to your head. And I'm like, tell me about this day. <laughs> you just get going. So that's, no, that's, that's never been one of my shortcomings. No, and it's much. beautiful and it's wonderful. Um, well, yeah, let's talk. Let's, we'll, we'll, I'll get back to you. And we'll, we'll go further. Absolutely. Yeah, man. I, I, again, this is my favorite type of podcast is I can just sit back and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just like at a lecture. I'm just listening. And I just so happen yeah. to be recording it. Um, but yeah, because uh, several times you said, I'm glossing over this and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And the beauty of this podcast and being a one man operation, there's no boss, there's no producer, there's no, you know, PR team, there's no focus group of, well, you've been doing a lot of FBI lately. No, it's just me. So all those things that you said, like I glossed over that, or let's not go down that rabbit hole. No, like don't gloss over it. Let's go down all the rabbit holes. It doesn't matter. So. <laughs> yeah. Put together your fa- put together some of your favorite shit, and I think we should dive back into it. God, I think I tell you what, it would be great. So I get about three or four of my buddies in here with a, with a case of beer. Do it, and you hear some do it. Get them all in here. I don't give a fuck. That would be awesome. I'm being, I'm because being... you know what, those guys I play off those guys. I can they remind me of stuff yeah. that I forgot. You yeah, know, no, you, you get, get them, a, yeah, yeah, you get the momentum yeah. going. Yeah, I've had on. Uh, Comstock and Tedi, and they they can't acknowledge it. They legally cannot, but they were in uh, the CIA Special Activities Division, which is a uh, which was Ian Fleming's literal inspiration for James Bond. Yeah. And when those two get together, they start playing off each other because if it's just me and it's one guy who spent ten years in Delta Force and then nine years working for the agency, and then it's me above my parents' garage, and I'm like, "What's it like to kill people?" And they're like, "What the fuck?" But then when you get them together and talking, they start playing off each other, and it's like, I don't know, they're like talking to each other with their eyes. They can't say stuff that's classified, but it it turns into this storm system, and it starts feeding, and they turn into beautiful episodes. So, dude, if you have any friends nearby, by all means, get them yeah, over. They will do that. Get liquored up, dude. Get it going. <laughs> They're a little shy, so I'm... Ah, yeah, just give them a couple drinks. Get them going. <laughs> okay. Fuck yeah. All right, well, we'll talk. All right, well, thank you, Mr. Albrock. And, oh, you said that's your dad. So Don, you call me Don. Don, thank you, Don. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it normally it takes several hours to upload, so it probably won't be up until, like, the wee hours, but I'll send you a link. And um, Yeah, no problem. Yeah, man, I've got I've got up until like the third wide open from now until January okay. through January third, so including the third from now until yep. then I'm wide open. So okay. just choose choose the day of your liking, and let's fucking mm-hmm. do it. Sounds good. Fuck yeah! Thank you so Tommy, much, Don. Pleasure. Dude, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your stories, and I'm excited yeah. for part two. And um, yeah, I'm deciding what I'm what picture I'm going to make for the thumbnail the youtube thumbnail and I, I might go with the tactical porn star mustache i might i may i might make that take pick take one where i'm young and thin okay young, young and thin all right yeah i'll do all right I'll, I'll, yeah, so, i don't know but i don't know the mortar one's pretty badass the humvee one where the guy's got that was that the mark 42 the automatic grenade yeah. launcher that's yeah. a, that's a sick piece of weaponry um <laughs> Well, fuck yeah. Well, thanks, man. I'll leave that to you. Yeah, right, thank you. Lot, and uh, yeah, I'll text you, and um, please, yeah, do get back to me, and let's set another one up sooner than later. Sounds good. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, Bye-bye. buddy. You have a good one.